you would grab a Bible and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1. I'll be spending the next few minutes working through this text, and so it would be to your benefit to have a Bible open to that place, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We have a number of visitors here. We're so thankful that you're here. We want you to know that you're welcome here. We're happy that you've come to join us, and we would like to get to know you better. We'd like to do whatever we can to help you to draw closer to God and get to know you and and tend to and minister to the needs that you have. But thank you for being with us this morning. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 17. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 17 says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 1, 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 1, it says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So this section is bookended by statements that Paul is concerned about wisdom and eloquence because, in his words, they would empty the cross of its power. He is emphasizing that we don't dress up the gospel. And yet, I really do work as hard as I can to say things well, to be eloquent when possible. And shouldn't the gospel make sense? Shouldn't there be some wisdom to it? So just what is Paul saying here? That's what I want us to think about for a few minutes. Now, as Drew mentioned, this is the fifth Sunday, which is a special day that our elders have set aside to focus on the Lord's Supper. We take the Lord's Supper weekly in this congregation following the example of the church at Troas. And yet, there is a time each quarter when we take special attention and focus on the sacrifice of Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. And I want to call your attention this morning to this section of text. And particularly, there is a word that is used in chapter 1 and verse 23 of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 23 says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. And that word for stumbling block is the Greek word scandalon, from which we get our word scandal. What Paul is saying is that in some ways the cross is scandalous. And I want us to think about how that can be true. How the cross can be a stumbling block or a hurdle and why that would be. So to grasp this text, we need to understand the nature of the problem in Corinth. In Corinth, there was an issue with having an overinflated view of people. The Corinthians are trying to glorify certain men over other men. I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas. Now, we understand that. I think we can relate to that in America because we tend toward that same kind of hero worship in our culture. That is, if someone is beautiful, if someone is famous, if someone is good at some sport or some activity, we think that they're better than the rest of us. And in fact, we'll even trust their words. We think that they have wisdom. So we understand what it means to try to attach ourselves to a certain person. And Paul says that is a problem as relates to the gospel. That's not the way the gospel works. The gospel is not personality driven. There is something else at play. So while Paul addresses hero worship, he thinks back to the time when he was at Corinth. And he's trying to remember who it was that he baptized. Look in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 14. 
I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that they were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. So Paul said, I'd kind of forgotten who all I baptized, but I'm glad I didn't baptize everybody because, not because I didn't want them to be baptized, but because they might think that I was doing it in my own name and try to worship me the way they're worshiping and lining up under other men. Verse 17 says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So he says, the reason I'm glad I didn't baptize a bunch of you is because I'm not here to do the baptizing. Anybody can baptize. I'm here to preach the gospel. It doesn't matter who does the physical act of putting someone in the water. What matters is that Christ is preached and that you believe in him and obey him. That's why he says, I was sent. But if the gospel is preached with words of eloquent wisdom, he says, then the cross is drained of its power. And so Paul begins to say, instead of glorifying men, the message of the cross is specifically designed to be a stumbling block or a scandal to some. So why would that be? Why is the cross a stumbling block? First, It's because it's intended to destroy the wisdom of the wise. Look in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So he says there are two different reactions to the cross. Those who accept it know that it's God's power to save, but those who are perishing think it is foolishness. It doesn't make any sense to them. Verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So Paul says this is in keeping with God's long-standing desire to destroy man's wisdom, to shame man into realizing that he's not as wise as he thinks he is. And that is part of what the cross does. It is intended to destroy the wisdom of the wise. People always think their way is right. And the cross shows us everybody was wrong. Nobody got to the cross by virtue of their own wisdom. Verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So we ask about a number of different groups, the wise, the scribes. These are people who are known by their wisdom. When he says, where are they? He means, what have they achieved or accomplished because they're so smart? Where have they gotten themselves? They certainly didn't get to the point where they understood God and his purposes. Verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So this is the crux verse. He says, God hatched a plan to destroy the wisdom of the wise, and that plan is the cross. So how did that work? Well, God exposed the limits of the wise. In all their philosophizing and in all their study, they did not reach the wisdom of God. So what they did instead, instead of detecting the plan of God, reaching out to them, they rejected the plan of God. And so their wisdom was proven to be pointless and worthless. So God chose a message that was deliberately unwise to shame the wise. So what good is earthly wisdom if it doesn't answer the real questions of life or it doesn't achieve salvation that God offers freely. 
So can I sum all that up pretty quickly? Nobody comes away from the cross impressed with themselves. Nobody comes away from the cross talking about how smart they are. The cross is part of God's plan to show how ungenious man is. And it says something powerful about God that he would be able and willing to use something like this to so utterly shame man. So why do people stumble over the cross? Because it means they have to humble themselves instead of exalting themselves. Second, the cross is a stumbling block because it's not what people are looking for. They're seeking other things. Look at verse 22 with me. Verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So Paul speaks in some generalities here about what Jews seek and what Greeks seek. He's talking about the spirit of the culture. There are things that are cultural emphases. So you've got Jewish culture that emphasize practical evidence. We want signs, they say. So they come to Jesus repeatedly, you remember this, seeking a sign. What sign do you show us that you do all of these things? And Jews demand signs. That's what they're looking for. Greeks, though. Greeks are different. He says in verse 22, Greeks seek wisdom. They want to speculate and debate and muse about the nature of life and the great virtues. And so when they are seeking the Messiah or they're seeking God, they want a God who is full of great wisdom. Tell us something we've never heard before. So the Jew would say, talk is good, but what can you do? And the Greek would say, signs are fine, but what do you know? But none of them want what God offers. In fact, I want you to notice that both of those perspectives really rely on the brilliance of the human intellect. That I can discern the sign and say, yes, I have decided that you really are from God. Or that I can recognize your wisdom and say, that's truly divine wisdom. But really, it comes down to the same point. It's all about me as the judge of whether you truly are from God. So, what does God do in the face of these desires? One for signs, one for wisdom. Well, verse 23 tells us, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. So, for the Jews, it's a, it's a tripping point. It's a hurdle, because it's not the sign that they're looking for. For Gentiles, though, it's folly. It's not the wisdom that they're looking for. Everyone finds something to hate in the cross. Because who is looking for a dying Messiah? A shamed Messiah. Instead, they say God would never act like that. But believers see something different here. Verse 24. Verse 24 says, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So believers see that this is the power of God. That's the sign. And he is the wisdom of God. That's the wisdom. In all of that, we see that God was doing something no one was looking for, yet was precisely what they needed. So the sign seekers are blind to the true sign, and the wisdom seekers cannot discern the greatest wisdom. So the cross is a stumbling block because it's not what people are looking for. I don't just mean that it's not what people were expecting. It certainly wasn't what people were expecting. 
But when I say it's not what they were looking for, I mean it's not what they wanted. They wanted God to do something in a way that pleased them. And yet, God did it in a way that he saw fit to do it. And so they stumbled. When we look at the cross, what I mean, what Paul means, is the idea of God inhabiting a body and walking dusty streets in Palestine, of being whipped and beaten and spit at, being stripped and hanged for the sins of other people. We need to see that that is not very appealing. And that's the point. People would never come up with this. It is not from human wisdom. So when we hear little statements like, we preach Christ crucified, we need to hear that for what it's really saying, that there is scandal and unpleasantness and unexpectedness associated with it. But as believers, we also see, what does this say about the power of God, that he could use something like this to influence the world to him? What does it say about the wisdom of God that he would find a plan just exactly topsy-turvy enough to do all that he had wanted to accomplish. The cross is also a stumbling block because it glorifies what's shameful, foolish, and despised. Look at verse 26 with me. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So Paul says, look around at each other. God didn't call you because you're wise. That's not how you got to be where you are. Where God said, you know what, I'm going to look at the whole earth and I'm going to get the cream of the crop. Instead, he says, no, you are the lowly. There are no impressive physical criteria by which God chose the Corinthians or any other group of Christians, by the way, including this one. We're not impressive. That's the point. Instead, God chose us both in spite of and because of our weakness and our foolishness and our shamefulness to defeat the pride of those who are great. Now, the goal in all of this, he says, look at verse 29, is that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Instead, he says, verse 30, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So it is because of God and God's purposes, not our impressiveness, that we are in Christ Jesus. That's what the cross does. That's what the cross does. It takes the most shameful, horrific form of death and it glorifies it. Have you thought about the fact that people all over the world wear that little symbol of a death instrument? Cicero said, Let the very name of the cross be far away, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts, his eyes, his ears. This is the way Romans thought of the cross. And to take that, something they didn't even want to think about or see, and to make it good, to redeem it, 
to take something that's associated with evil and criminals and violence and brutality and nakedness and to make it good. That's what God did in the cross. But Paul is also saying that 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 glorification of what is shameful is what God has done in us. He has taken us who are shameful and foolish and despised and made us good. He has redeemed us and makes us the instruments of His grace. But I think you can see, not everybody's ready to accept that. Not everybody's ready to look at something so shameful and give it glory. And so the cross becomes a stumbling block. And the final thing I want you to see here is that the cross is a stumbling block because it requires faith in God, not men. See, Paul retreats now to where he began this discussion, where he's talking about the preaching of a message of the cross. Look in chapter 2 and verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided not to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul says specifically, I did not come with lofty speech or wisdom. Instead, he says, I came with fear and trembling. I was weak. Now, Paul is not saying that he tried really hard not to make any sense. Okay, I don't want anybody to understand me. He is saying not that eloquence is bad. In fact, Paul appears to be very eloquent, even in translation and even thousands of years later. What he is saying is, I tried to preach in a way so that when I got done, you were impressed with God, not with me. You trusted God, not me. You thought about what I was saying as from God, not from me. The gospel, when it is properly preached, when it is properly understood, when it is properly applied, does not leave us believing in people. That's the point. Verse 5 says, Verse 5 says, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul says, my goal was to win you over, not to me, but to him. This is part of the scandal of the cross. It de-emphasizes faith in people. In fact, the reason Paul is so shocked at the hero worship in Corinth is he said, I tried, I went out of my way to make sure you didn't try to worship me. I try to put your faith in God, not in men. I preach this way for a reason. But I want to say there is something here for you and me. It is just easier for us to believe people than to believe God. It's easier for a man to get us worked up and excited. It's easier for a man to convince us of something or to lead us somewhere. That's the reason why most religions... Most companies, most nations center around one influential, charismatic leader. One person who whips up the public support. We like to believe in people. But the cross exposes that. The cross is about believing in something more than an exciting speaker. Having some kind of emotional response. Getting ourselves into a frenzy. Instead, we learn at the cross that there is one to believe in, yet he is far more than a man. He is far more than an exciting speaker. It challenges us to think more deeply 
about the one we serve and why we serve him. Because it requires faith in God, not faith in men. So I want you to think about a few things we can learn from this. If we're going to embrace the cross, if we're going to celebrate the cross, if we're going to follow the path of the cross, or in just a moment, if we're going to remember the sacrifice made at the cross, there are some things that that's going to require of us based on what we've just learned. First, to embrace the cross, we must expose our lack of wisdom. The cross teaches us our proper place. That our best thoughts don't match God's. Our best thoughts don't lead us to God. That there is no room at the cross for us glorifying ourselves. In fact, we're not that important at all. And so we need to know that even when we've been well taught by the master, we don't ever reach a point where our wisdom is significant or anything to boast of. Instead, as he says, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, not in himself. So we sit at the foot of the cross, shocked, humbled, and most of all, overwhelmed by the fact that this did not happen because of any virtue that we possess. To embrace the cross, we have to seek something deeper. Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. If all we're after is a demonstration of power, which may be the calling card of modern America, if all we are after is fancy philosophy, a better way to think about and live life, then the cross is going to cause problems for us. Because Jesus stripped and bleeding and dying doesn't show great power and doesn't show great wisdom. If what we want is a charismatic teacher, we might be disappointed. But the cross tells us that those natural desires very often lead us in the wrong direction. It says this is the right direction, the one you don't want. But anything that would have us look at the creator of the universe dying for the sins of others and walk away unaffected or say, nah, that's not really what I'm into, should challenge us to say, it's me that's wrong here. I need to seek a deeper goal than just the satisfaction of my desire for power or for wisdom. And to embrace the cross, we have to accept shameful things as a means of salvation. This thread runs through the text we've read. It's about God's foolishness, he says. It's about how God has chosen foolish things to shame the wise. So let me be more clear about that. We're talking about the shame of being stripped and beaten and condemned and brutally executed. We're talking about the shame of being ridiculed by your enemies who appear to get the last laugh. We're talking about the shame of men spitting in your face and laughing at you, beating you and mocking you to prophesy about who did it. We accept shame as the path to glory because Jesus walked that path and we see it most clearly and the cross. But if we think that this message is normal, 
and we think this message is just what everybody thinks and believes, then we are gravely mistaken. And in fact, even those who wear the name of Christ don't always accept and understand that there is shame involved in serving the Lord that will later give way to glory. So, this is the time in our service where we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. And as we partake, I encourage you to think about the cross in this way. Please hear me. I want us to ask the question, what would motivate God to do something like that for us? I want us to ask ourselves the question, how am I living in light of this sacrifice? So many people have stumbled over the cross. Am I different? Why do I accept what others reject? What is the appeal in the cross for me? Let's think about these things as we partake. I'd like to ask the men to come forward and serve us the supper. Now for the real sermon. Not really. Um, let's go to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. got a few things to say. And uh, we'll have the invitation in just a moment. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. I will uh, be reading from there in just a moment, Ecclesiastes 9. I, I wanted to take a moment. Uh, first of all, thank you to all those who participated in this service. And I, I am thankful for uh, a special service like this to focus our attention. Uh, it is good for me. And I hope it has been good for you, and I appreciate everyone uh, being accommodating of, uh, of that. Uh, for this little time, uh, this is intended to be uh, an invitation-type time, uh, but I wanted to talk for just a moment about uh, the new year and what is coming in 2020 for us. I didn't want to detract from what we were doing in the Lord's Supper service, but this will only take just a moment uh, for our plans for 2020. Uh, first of all, I have not said anything uh, about publicly about what we're planning on doing with the daily devotional readings for 2020. Uh, our theme for 2020 is going to be the story of Israel, which will be uh, selected readings from the Old Testament, basically from Genesis through Nehemiah. That's a big bunch of texts, so we're not going to read all of those. Uh, but the idea is to trace the history of Israel and to draw lessons along the way. So what you need to know is if you're getting those emails you will continue to get those emails. Nothing's going to change about that. Uh, if you are interested in our daily devotional emails, they come out every weekday. Um, you can sign up either on the visitor's card. There's a box you can check, or you can just let one of us know, and uh, we can sign you up for that. Uh, there is one new thing about that that I wanted to let you know about, uh, which is that the elders have asked me to make those available in audio. So not only sending out the email, which has the words that, you know, the scriptures and the devotional, but there will also be in that email a link to an audio file that you can play and listen. Some like to listen more than to play. I know that, or to play, listen more than to read. Um, but uh, I know that um, some have had trouble with the text and the email being too small and that kind of thing. So if it's easier for you to listen to it, that's fine. Uh, or if you are so inclined, I don't know what I have on the board here. Yeah, they'll be available in audio. If you're so inclined, we're going to release those as a podcast. So I know some of you, now some of you, when I say the word podcast, you immediately think, I have no idea what that is and I'm not interested. It's okay. 
just hang on just a second. For those who do know what podcasts are, interested in podcasts, uh, you can find that podcast as the Fairview Daily Devotional Podcast, and that should be available. Uh, there's an introduction out right now, but as they become available each day, uh, they, they can go straight to your podcast app if you're interested in that. Let me remind you why we do this. We do daily devotionals because we want to have regular spiritual food for the church here, for the Christians here. We want to incorporate daily Bible reading into our lives. Regular Bible reading, a regular schedule, a plan. We want to read these things together as a group, okay? Because I know that if we did not have a group effort, some might do this and some might do this, but we're doing all of this together. Everyone knows what we're doing and everyone is automatically involved. So in whatever format you choose to do that, I hope you'll make that a part of your year as we start uh, in a new place in Scripture uh, for 2020. I also wanted to tell you uh, my preaching theme for next year, where this year we talked about the kingdom throughout the year. Uh, It is different from the devotional readings. It's going to be called House Rules, Principles for Christian Homes. We're going to start that next week. Uh, will be the first lesson in that series. Uh, These are just the most important lessons we should be teaching in our homes. They are the ways we should be developing our relationship with God through our relationships with one another. They are rules to live by. So particularly, we're focusing on how parents can be teaching these lessons to their children, but you will find, whether you have children or not, children at home or not, that these are lessons that are important for all Christians. So looking forward to that for the year. Uh, A couple of things just for dates and things like that. This is what we have planned in terms of our schedule for the year. Uh, We are planning on continuing the Bible Workshop weekend, uh, March 13th and 14th. That's for the young people. Uh, We're planning on having our VBS May 31st to June 3rd. That is the uh, Sunday to Wednesday, the first first one there. Uh, We're still planning on having our summer meeting uh, July 26th to 30th. I didn't check on that date. Is that right, Brother Don? July 26th to 30th? He doesn't have them all memorized. Wow. You believe that's right. Okay. I I didn't check on that. I wrote this, and I thought, I need to check on that on the bulletin board, and then I never did. Uh, And then uh, our adult Bible workshop, we're going to continue that in the fall. We don't have a date on that yet, uh, but that went so well that the elders decided we're going to do that again. And uh, so that is is kind of the layout for the year. And uh, so I will have these typed up and put them on the bulletin board so that you have them. Uh, But I do encourage, let me say this. Uh, I do encourage us as much as we can to make these events and these days that we have a priority in the year to come. I know that we all have a lot of things that we're planning throughout the course of the year, but this is an opportunity where before the year begins, we can kind of plan that out and make sure that we're going to be able to be here uh, for these things that the church is planning. They'll be a blessing to you. We're not ready for that quite yet. So... Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 10 is where I want to read. I I had not planned on reading this passage until Mike made a comment in class that brought it to my memory, and I thought it would go well with what I have to say for just these last couple of minutes. Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 10 says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. The word Sheol is a word for the grave, And so Solomon has what you might consider to be a rather morbid idea that because we're going to die and when we die, 
There's no hope to accomplish the things that we're wanting to accomplish while we're alive. His advice is, whatever you have the opportunity and the time to do, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all you've got. Do it with your might. Because we have a limited amount of time. God gives us the blessing of time. But none of us know how much time we have, and none of that is guaranteed. But one of the interesting things about time is that there are transitions in time that sometimes cause us to take a break and stop and think. Transitions like the seasons, where we notice things changing. Transitions like day and night. And transitions like months and years. And sometimes when we come to those transitions, it reminds us of just how quickly time is passing. Which means we have less time now than we have ever had before. I don't intend to be morbid, but I do intend for us to be realistic about the fact that we all have things that we want to accomplish in our families, in our work, and our walk with God. And that Solomon's advice is good advice for a time of year like this. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your mind. So it's natural for us to take stock at this time of year of our lives and the things we're accomplishing and where we are and the pattern of our development. I want to encourage you to make God are the key part of whatever changes you make in your life in these days. To do what you need to do with all your strength. Now, if that needs to start right now, if that needs to start because there is a struggle that you need to tackle or a passion that you need to embrace or a new commitment that you need to make, do it now. We invite you to come to the front while we stand and sing to encourage you.